Welcome to the Meetings Done Right podcast. This is a podcast about running better meetings in conjunction with the Table XI inclusion cards. And today we are talking not just about a single card, but we are talking generically about inclusive culture and meetings. And we have a special guest, Elise Zelikowski. Elise, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Elise Zelikowski, I'm the Director of Social Impact for the global software consultancy ThoughtWorks. Welcome, Elise. Thank you. You know, by the time uh, that we this podcast comes through on our podcast feed, we'll have had a number of episodes talking about specific behaviors that are to be discouraged or promoted in a meeting. But in this episode, we want to talk a little bit more generally is about inclusivity and having an inclusive culture. And first of all, like, what does that mean to you to have uh, an inclusive culture in your company's discussions? For me, uh, having an inclusive culture really means that you've built enough trust among members of your team that people feel that they can bring their authentic selves to work and to meetings and that they feel comfortable and empowered to actively participate in conversations with their colleagues. And I guess the two-part question here is, Two huge parts that we can we can take it one at a time. But what are some things that you can do to work towards that goal? And then what are some of the benefits that that provides? Let's talk about the benefits first. What do you, what should you see if your meeting culture is becoming more inclusive? I think you see broader participation. So we are operating often on global calls with people who speak different languages or different time zones. Um, you know, obviously sort of different cultural norms and communication and team dynamics. So one of the things that we really try to do is make those differences very visible and acknowledge them as we go into uh, conversations or meetings to ensure that we're being very considerate um, of colleagues and that they feel like they have the tools that they need to fully participate um, in those meetings. If there's a language barrier, you know, if there's folks who need to be facilitated more actively, those kinds of things. Elise, what do you do when somebody is new at ThoughtWorks and hasn't been used to participating at such a global scale in the past? What are some of the things that you arm them with to prepare them for that kind of environment? Great question. So we have instituted a a program called the Unconscious Bias Training um, that we do with all new thought workers when they onboard, um, Mm -hmm. which really deals with some of the sort of considerations and questions around uh, bias and communication and sort of navigating cultural difference. Um, And we're actually implementing kind of a 2.0 right now for some of our um, account leadership teams. Um, since increasingly our our teams are, are are globally distributed, that is so important to making sure that everyone feels that they are able to collaborate, connect, and achieve um, what the team is setting out to achieve collectively and collaboratively. Excellent. And I'm interested to know about the history of your position at ThoughtWorks and how an officer of social impact came to be. So ThoughtWorks was founded about 25 years ago, and while social justice was always something that was very important to the founder and some of the early employees, um, it wasn't actually sort of operationalized until about 2010 when we Mm. adopted what I'll call the Ben and Jerry's (laughs) social (laughs) justice framework, which was this idea of sort of the three-legged stool. You know, Ben and Jerry's um, was committed to running a 
financially sustainable business. They were committed to making the world's best ice cream, and they were committed to advocating passionately for social and economic justice. Hmm. And our founder really liked that framework and felt that that would be a great framework for ThoughtWorks to adopt as well. So we replaced ice cream with technology and really started to embody this sort of complexity of how do we really sort of fight and advocate for social justice while, you know, growing and maintaining a sustainable business. So it's been an interesting journey for us. I mean, there's constantly tensions um, between, you know, the legs of the stool, but we think that makes us a better company. Um, We think that that really sort of forces us to have super thoughtful conversations, um, Mm -hmm. not only about sort of our culture and values, but also about the kind of tech we're building. Um, It's a lens that we believe makes technologists, better technologists, sort of question question everything, frankly, around the kinds of tech, issues around privacy and security, issues around accessibility, issues around, you know, potential bad actors that could use this technology in different ways. Hmm. So it's been an important part of, of who we are. So my role is is really somebody who facilitates these types of conversations globally. I also do this more specifically for the North America region. And i bring a lot of different stakeholders together to navigate these complex questions. So it's a it's a it's a really a, a facilitation and strategy role. What are some of the things that you do in some of these discussions, in some of these meetings to ensure that they run smoothly and that people get heard and and that the, the kinds of issues that you were talking about earlier get surfaced? So I do facilitate a lot of meetings. I have a lot of global uh, working groups that I support. So we're working across many time zones, sometimes uh, as diverse as, you know, somebody from San Francisco and Australia on the same call. So one of the things that I do is I, I start by validating the agenda at the top of the call and just making sure that there's nothing else people want to talk about. You know, usually we try to, if we have a working group that's meeting regularly, we try to end the previous call with a, a pretty good understanding of kind of where we're at. Uh, in summary and and where we're going for the next conversation. But I always like to validate that and just say, is this the agenda that everybody here wants to talk about today? Is there anything missing from this agenda? Because that, you know, will elicit any concerns, ideally, uh, from people who feel like, you know, we're not focused on the right issue and will make people feel like they have had more input into the goal of the, the conversation. So I think that's a really important one. If we have time, I really do, and usually we do this in the first five minutes as we're waiting for people to join. We normally never start our calls until about five minutes after the call time. I'm sure that's pretty uh, universal. But I really like to check in with people personally and ask them how they're doing. Just check in, um, because I think that really makes people feel more connected and builds trust Mm -hmm. um, and allows them to just feel more comfortable to fully participate in the conversation, to be their authentic selves. And, you know, if something is weighing on somebody's mind and they feel comfortable sort of saying, you know, I'm coming to this call today or this meeting with, you know, something of a personal issue, you know, had a rough morning with my kids or something like that. It sort of allows for a certain amount of grace and understanding, you know, how to how to better navigate um, in conversation with that person and where they're coming from. So I think that that's an important piece. I agree. Actually, I remember the first time, well, I used to have this series of morning meetings at 7 a.m. And the company that I worked for would have senior people train the junior people 
you do, you know, like best practices, all of your internal meetings were done at 7am. And you really only had, let's say half an hour or an hour to get everything accomplished. And I had a coworker who I actually adore, but she always spent so much time, I thought, chit-chatting and talking about stuff that was, in my mind, frivolous. And I used to get so annoyed. And finally, someone took me aside and said, you know, you're getting super annoyed. But like, this is an important part of the meeting, building the relationship. And you have to be willing to do that. And it really changed my mindset from, all right, we're going to come in and we're going to get the job done to all right, we will make some relationship building a part of what's going on here. And it really made the whole thing much better. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. That is one of the things, in addition to the unconscious bias training, that we recommend for new thought workers. When we put together onboarding plans, we actually are very explicit that one of your goals for the first three months that you're at ThoughtWorks is to really just build relationships. Mm-hmm. is to take time to just get to know your colleagues, um, attend the talks that we do in the office, you know, sit next to somebody because we we believe that that personal connection, right, is just so important to being able to collaborate um, on different teams and our teams, right, sort of change based on the account that you're on. And so you have to really network and get to know folks to build that trust. Table XI recommends that you uh, have lunch with as many coworkers as possible in your first month or so. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really important. And has the um, has the existing coworkers make that part of the plan? Elise, it sounds like a lot of the meetings you run are remote and are you know on calls. What about this trust process is harder because of that, and how do you sort of work around that? That's a great question. I think that you know one of the things that we strive to do is really make it clear that we're sort of all operating sort of at the same level in terms of power dynamics. Because I think sometimes there are ways in which Global North and Global South power dynamics or sort of anticipated power dynamics play out Mm -hmm. without people even sort of being super aware um, of those issues. And so we try to be very clear and really hold ourselves accountable that we're not letting any sort of like dynamics where the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia, especially because, you know, of English sort of dominates the meeting agenda or dominates the conversation. So we really try to, especially when it comes to leading conversations about certain topics or sort of leading decision-making um, initiatives, we really try to make sure that the groups that are formed to do that work are balanced with representation from different countries that's an important thing because we are ultimately, we are a company that was founded in the U.S., you know, and a lot of our leadership historically has been um, U.S.-based. So we really try to be considerate of that. The other thing is is obviously language. Um, And I often get asked to stop for a moment so that someone else on on the the call can translate or to slow down. Because uh, I can talk very quickly, and I'm tr- I try to be very mindful of that. We also try to figure out where there are situations where even you know slowing down speech in English is not going to be that helpful to our um, our audience and sort of understanding um, you know the communication. And so we will just replicate the meeting completely in Portuguese or completely in Chinese. Hmm. 
and we'll just step back and let, you know, let our partners lead. So those are the two things that really stand out. I think also when you're talking about time zones, someone's always going to be, often it's multiple people, are either, you know, on the phone way past their regular bedtime or up way early than they normally would be, right? So also sort of recognizing that people are coming from sort of a, a place of compromise and, and really, you know, being there in a way that requires them to, to stretch themselves um, energetically and really being mindful of that and making space for that and, and making it easier for them to participate by giving other people the rotation, um, note rotation responsibilities or letting, making sure we handle their agenda items quickly so that they can sign off and go to bed or get their day started. So that's, that's, a, that's a big part of it. But it's not uncommon, you know, when we're on these global calls to hear people's kids in the background, you know, the kitchen pots and pans, uh, because people are working remotely and they're working globally. And we have to sort of make space for this new way of working that like recognizes that this work enters people's domestic life in a way that it hasn't maybe in the past. Right. So, mm-hmm. so how do we be as, as kind as possible so that, you know, people can, can sort of be present and successfully participate while recognizing that they have these, that they, they have a domestic life that they need to attend to. Okay. Uh, Elise, one thing that we have been asking everybody is to share their, either their best meeting story or their worst meeting story. So uh, do you have a story to tell us? Well, I wouldn't say it's one story in particular, but I can tell you one of my biggest meeting pet peeves, and I try to be really conscious of this, not only for my own behaviors, but when I'm facilitating in-person meetings, especially, is people closing their laptops. I think that having your laptop open when other people are talking and looking at your laptop while other people are talking uh, when you're in the same room together is extremely distracting and really, I would say, kills the vibe. Uh, of the meeting. You know, I know, you know, we need to take notes and, you know, often there's slides for people to look at. So I do like to, when possible, make sure that if there is a document people need to look at, it's either up on the screen or it's printed and also encourage people to take notes with pen and paper, you know, or sort of be working in groups where they can be scribing on post-its instead of needing to sit there and and take a lot of notes personally on their own computers. Um, Obviously, when you're doing a remote call, that's difficult because people are looking into their computer Mm -hmm. to see each other. So that's harder to manage. And I I do think that that's one of the challenges with remote meetings is that people get distracted. There's tons of things open on their screens. They're getting pinged. And so people are often multitasking. So I think it's really about if people aren't talking on the call, I try to really intentionally engage them, um, you know, just say, you know, is there anything, you know, you want to add here or do you have specific thoughts about this? They may say no and they may, you know, decide they don't want to participate that way. But I do try to bring people in very intentionally into the conversation because I know even with our best intentions of not checking email or going on social media, sometimes it's just, it's just hard. So I, I think from a good meeting perspective, when you are all comfortable enough where there's a really good sense of humor among the group, that there's levity and an authenticity that you can really feel from from everyone. I think another sort of attribute of a good meeting is that people feel safe challenging each other's opinions so that there's respectful Mm -hmm. 
debate and and confrontation that's grounded in sort of like love and care for one another, but that you feel that because there's so much, you know, certainty of the sort of trust in that relationship that you can, you can question and say, you know, um, what if we thought about this differently? Or that doesn't, you know, that doesn't resonate with me. You know, here's what I think. And that takes a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but I think it's, uh, it really leads to better outcomes. Outstanding. Great. And uh, aside from the things that we've talked about already, do you have another tip or something that people can do to improve the meetings in their company that they can take advantage of right away? I do think a lot of times we don't do enough note-taking and and clearly summarizing the outcomes of a meeting and what the next steps are so that people feel like meetings end up being a waste of time because it's not sort of clear where the group landed and what the action items are. So I really highly recommend that they take the time to designate a note taker, ask for volunteers to to do note taking, and at the end of the call to summarize and report out what those action items are and who's responsible for what. I also record every meeting. I ask for permission from everybody on the call, Hmm. and then I record it, and I make it available for people afterwards who also either miss the meeting so they feel like they were included. I'm somebody who learns better when I hear versus when I read. So for me, recorded meetings are, are much more useful to get context. And I always appreciate having those. So making it possible for people with different learning styles to get the context and understand and follow along, I think is also an important thing that people can do. Excellent. Yeah, those are great pieces of advice. Elise, thank you so much for being on this podcast with us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Meetings Done Right podcast. If you would like to learn more about the Inclusion Meeting Cards, order a set of your own, or find out about other episodes of this podcast, go to meetingsdoneright.co. That's meetingsdoneright, all one word, .co. You can also find out more about this podcast by searching for Meetings Done Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts will help people find the show. The Inclusion Meeting Cards and the Meeting Done Right podcast are produced by TableXI. TableXI is one of Inc. Magazine's best workplaces and a top-rated custom software development company on Clutch.co. Learn more about TableXI at TableXI.com. Meetings Done Right is hosted by Ashley Quinto-Powell and Noel Rappin and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening.